Welcome to High on the Hog with Merrill Schindler and co-hosts Joanna Belson and Janice Hardoon. This is a podcast about all things cannabis. Tune in every week as Merrill, Joanna, and Janice discuss the medical benefits of CBD and THC products with each other, as well as with informed guests from the cannabis industry and the lawmakers who regulate it. Enjoy the show. This is Merrill Schindler. If you've turned on the news these days, watch any of the cable shows, open a newspaper, a magazine, you know that we're in a lot of trouble in a lot of different ways. But one of the ways that maybe a lot of headlines, a lot of attention is our opioid addiction. And it's something for us to deal with here on High in the Hog, the podcast, because our products are, I'd say as a rule, totally devoid of addiction. On the other hand, opioids, we've got um, Harry Nelson, attorney at law, man who knows much about addiction, opioids, um, medicine, our medical system. Our medical system, I think, will, you know, to talk about that for a whole show would get people too depressed. So it's, it's let's talk about the issue which you deal with so extensively in the United States of opioids, liberating a nation, a prescription for liberating a nation in pain. My question is, growing up back in the day, I remember people had Milltown. They used to take Milltown every now and then. There were folks who, you know, couldn't go out without, it was a type of meprobamate. It was an early, um, like, Valium. Um, you know, there were folks who, you know, wouldn't go to a restaurant with us unless they had a full bar because they had to have their cocktails. You know, they clearly, they needed their drink, or at least they wanted their drink. But how do we get to where we are today? We're a mess. Yeah, so uh, first, it's great to be with you, Meryl. We, we were in a 40-year uh, spiraling overdose and uh, death rate from substances, from alcohol, from drugs. It's all one thing. One of the things I try to say in the book is we've got an opioid crisis that goes back 20 years to the late 90s when OxyContin came on the market. But we have a, a, a drug overdose crisis and a substance use overdose crisis that really goes back to the late 70s. And so something has gone fundamentally wrong in the last 40 plus years to just start driving people to accidentally uh, 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 end their lives through overdose, intentionally end their lives. And we have this mass of people, uh, uh, 20 million plus people report misusing substances in the last year, 65 million report misusing alcohol. So there's a huge problem. And and, 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 and along with that, uh, this, re- this 50 million people who say that pain is a major source in their life. And when we talk about pain, physical pain and emotional pain, that's, that's clearly a driver of uh, it's somehow related to this this problem of misuse, overdose, and Let's addiction. Hold for a second while the world goes by. There we go. Some okay. uh, a healthcare problem uh, a healthcare in transit. <laughs> so yeah, so something something is going fundamentally wrong, and I try to I try to get at the roots of it in the book. But some years ago, I I was in a relationship with someone who had a had a drinking problem, and you know they would have to go a couple of times a week to AA meetings, which I happily went to. I thought they were absolutely fascinating, but I could never figure out as someone who's blessed with a non-addictive personality, what made them addicted? It's just not something, I will have a glass of wine and then I won't have another glass of wine. And, but, but what they had seemed so minor by comparison 
so, now. So, I, I, by the way, Johan Hari talks about this, and he, he points out he, some, some studies that 90% of people who use different drugs and alcohol do perfectly fine with them. About 10% of people are at risk of a use disorder or abuse of the drug. And so the question is, what's going on? Uh, one of the big, I, I, I like to think about it as sort of a set of long-term issues and short-term issues. The long-term issues start with connection, right? People feel disconnected. That's Johan Hari, he focuses really on that issue. Connection, being connected to other people is a driver of human happiness. And we're living in a time when so many people feel so disconnected, so disengaged from anybody else that they turn to the, if you're disconnected from people, you're going to, to connect with a substance. And do note that part of the AA process is that people are connected with other people. They have the sponsor, they have the group they go to, they have a great deal of backup. So what you're saying about connection, those who have no connection can go to AA and find connection. Exactly, so, so, so the psychosocial connection, being in a community of peers who give each other social and emotional support is a fundamental of 12-step and it's, it's a fundamental of human happiness. If you look at what happens in any religious group, in a church, on a Sunday or in a synagogue, that's what's going on, right? That's, that's one of the drivers of human happiness. There are a lot of different studies about what really makes people happy and they, it comes down to basically four things. You can find this in Maslow. Uh, a friend of mine, Brian Portnoy, wrote a book last year called The Geometry of Wealth and he, 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 I like his, he came up with a good way to remember it, four C's. He, say, he said, what makes people happy is connection to others, context, meaning a sense of purpose and meaning in your life, control, meaning that you, you feel that you're participating in what's happening to you, you're not just at the mercy of others, and competence, being of service to other people and being good at something. For most people, that's their work. But those are, those are the things that make people happy, that, that drive happiness in the long term. And when those are stripped away from people, uh, the, what 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 fills the void is too often uh, drugs. I notice what's notably missing is wealth. Well, yeah. So it's wealth. interesting. So the point of his book is that wealth wealth only affects happiness to a survival level. Once you have clothes on your back, food on your plate, and a shelter over your head, then then there's no connection further beyond that between. Uh, uh, happiness and wealth. All, that's why this pursuit of a of wealth in our society is actually a driver of unhappiness. We're, we're here in Los Angeles, not far from Beverly Hills. I don't think they know what you're talking I, about. Uh, I know that's not a message that anyone wants to hear. Uh, it's not. It doesn't sell well. But that's that's really if you want to focus on long term long term things that you can do. It's sort of make sure that your life is oriented in those four ways. I don't know. I know people who'd be made very happy by a Birkin bag. So, <laughs> you know, what can I? What the heck can I say? My kids don't but, like it either. Though. <laughs> but it's um, how much more addictive or powerful, or what have you, is oxycontin or opioids? How much stronger than anything that we had in the past? Because I'm I'm sort of guessing that part of the addiction is you is that they make heroin seem like like nothing by comparison yeah so these these hospital medical grade synthetic opioids like fent the original fentanyl that was the the approved version uh and and more going back to morphine you know we have a steady array of of of, of synthetic opioids that are prescription grade uh that are far higher quality than the heroin or the other other variations on the street. So, I mean, part of the big risk that I, I that got me involved in this issue was I was dealing with doctors in hospital settings. And if you're a doctor who was feeling disconnected and you uh, turned to hospital grade drugs, you were getting the best stuff on the market. And that's part of the reason that opioids 
took hold when Purdue Pharma and other manufacturers started marketing them so aggressively. We had a, the, uh, this this forty year uh, um, rise that I'm talking about is across all drugs, but opioids were fundamentally uh, more powerful, a cleaner uh, a euphoria, and uh, and 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 so popular even though they were probably the deadliest of all the the street drugs that we've um, seen, you know, be popular. And the street drugs, interestingly, seem to vary from from era to era. There's there's a constant ebb and flow in terms of what they're using out on the street. And you almost feel like, I don't know, like someone's manipulating everybody. I don't want to be, you know, a, a conspiracy theorist here, but how did suddenly everyone get hooked on... Um, on 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 cocaine. Where did it come from? After I, this was a generation that was quite happy smoking a, a little grass. Maybe I'm not. I may not be enough of a conspiracy theorist, but I I, <laughs> I I tend to think of it as what law enforcement cracks down. It's a push down pop up problem. So like whack a mole. So the government cracked down on 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 uh, uh, you know a drug PCP, and so then uh, cocaine came into the fore. Right, meth. What we're seeing right now is really interesting. Is meth has made a huge West Coast rise. If you talk to people in LA County Department of Health, uh, they'll, they'll tell you we have a bigger meth crisis locally here on on the West Coast. And it's just it's always that may be just success in law enforcement and cracking down on the flow of the drugs on the street. Dr- the bottom line is there's a very efficient market between drug traffickers and drug seekers, drug users. And so they'll find a, a middle ground around some substance. It just it just varies according to what's it available. There also may be a coefficient between a connection between what the drugs do and the times that we're in. I mean, cocaine was a up, 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 up drug. It was, you know, it was it was the movie industry. It was like, got to gotta get out another film this week. What we put out two last week, um, and. If I'm correct, opioids are very down. I uh, very like you know, no nobody feels any pain. Not not true. That's so why I love I love the theory, but I I, my, I the, the reason I'm a skeptic is because some of the if you look at some of the crap that is getting popular in particular markets, I mean, there's a product in Atlanta on the streets now called Gray Death, which is concrete catchy name as a, as a filler to opiates i so i i don't i mean i think your i think that kind of nuanced view it, it may it, it may be true in certain more sophisticated markets of drug use as you go up the economic ladder and you get you know wealthy people making choices where they have a lot of economic power my sense is that most drug use is is born of desperation and people just trying to get their hands on what's available my question to you is with the manufacturing because you talk about meth being the hot thing and i i'm clueless on it because i'm just not exposed to it i'm not around people to talk about it but because of manufacturing and people having access to doing this manufacturing and you also had the tv show that the guy was making the meth as well breaking Breaking bad Bad, so does that what brings all this into so like now you I asked, is there a shortage of opiates on the street now that they've cracked down on these doctors and you start to see them pick up? Are people able to get a thousand pills on the street now like they used to? I think it's gotten harder. So the DEA has done a really good job of cracking down on the prescription opioids. Part part of the issue is that uh, the DEA has very good tracking from the main... They have a great track and trace system because my dad, I can remember the triple kids going... 
They've had a the DEA created a great system in the '70s called Arcos, and it basically Purdue Pharma, you know, uh, manufactures the OxyContin, and so they're tracked there and they're traced going to the distribution point of McKesson or the other distributor, and then what's it roots, and then from McKesson either to a doctor's office or to a pharmacy. Um, what's interesting is the DEA never tracked that last mile, so we don't know. That's why. So for a long time, doctors could sell them. Yeah, on the street. yeah, but yeah. And I can't tell you. Over the years, I've had dozens of cases where doctors will uh, call me because they'll say the DEA is coming to my office. I can't figure out what's going on, and I start looking at their ordering uh, uh, data, and there's some spike. And sure enough, every time there's an employee who developed a drug problem, or there's a spouse who uh, had plastic surgery and needed a supply, and <laughs> and they're ordering on the office account, and that brought the DEA. So now the DEA is like a hawk on pharmacies, on doctors. So that's not on the street. And so for a long time, we were seeing, you know, what happened, and Sam Canonis talks about this in the book Dreamland, which I recommend. He talks about when the, when the DEA started cracking down, the Mexican cartels, which were kind of taken out of the cannabis game, they got in in a big way into black tar heroin. So that rolled in, and then it was, that was about 2010. And then in 2013, the fentanyl, uh, the fentanyl flow went crazy, and, and the DEA was asleep. At the wheel, while while Chinese uh, importers started mailing small packets, and and it was it was a powerful enough drug that and it started coming across the borders, uh, and a little bit of manufacture here, but I, I don't know my I'm not enough of a a lab geek to know why, but for some reason it's easier for for people to make meth in these local labs than fentanyl. So fentanyl still I'm it, not a lab geek either. I just want <laughs> you to be comfortable with that. I know and I mean and you know I'm so impressed because Harry knows more about drugs now I than I do. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know where this fentanyl came from all of a sudden because you hear it in the news with all these celebrity overdoses, but like it came out of left field all of a sudden. So fentanyl's been around as a legal prescribed drug, right? The, there was just a trial in Boston last week, a conviction of the executives of Insys, this company that makes the sublingual patch, right? There's the duragesic path. So, so we've had fentanyl. Fentanyl is, I always hate saying how many times more powerful than morphine, because you'll say a thousand times. It's either, I think it's a hundred times more powerful than morphine. So it, it was around as the top grade drug. When I first came to LA in the early 2000s, I started working with a lot of doctors who were, you know, like we were talking about, disconnected in the hospital and they they started using fentanyl because it was the best stuff. But we didn't start seeing illegal, this like sort of, you know, this, 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 all this trafficking where people were just setting up a lab with precursor chemicals and making their own fentanyl until 2013. But once they started doing that, the, the combination of its cheap price and its relatively easy manufacture made it super popular. And, and so what we started seeing was part of the reason like kids are dying is they, they would think they were taking Percocet and what they were really getting was faked fentanyl and fentanyl was so much more powerful than Percocet that you, you take a, 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 a you take one of the pills you go to bed and you don't wake up in the morning because your breathing basically was slowed down by its power and are people ever this is a dumb question but are people ever in so much pain that this is what they need rather than you know uh, rather than Norco or something like that. So I so I learned really learned one of the lessons I learned with the book was there's a, there are a lot of people who were doing just fine, right? We talked about 90% of people who use drugs do fine with them. There were plenty of people who were managing their pain effectively with prescription opioids. Those people did not like I, I me. I didn't I didn't realize I was going to get hate mail when I wrote this book, <laughs> but they get very insulted because they basically say when you talk about the legitimate people with pain 
alongside the people who are misusing the drug, you're making it harder for them to get their medication. It's just like cannabis. But the bigger, so so there is, that's a... <laughs> I'm sorry. But. No, this is 100% the same. So, but but the what's interesting to me is there is a legitimate community, but at the same time, doctors have been, doctors were over-prescribing because, you know, it, doctors have been not given the training and don't have the time on, on insurance reimbursement to take the time to give patients other options. So there's a lot of work to be done on integrative approaches to pain. One of the things that uh, that I learned in the course of writing the book was I started hearing from people who were believers in mind-body approaches to pain. And what you when you look at this body of work, it's the most uh, well-known doctor uh, who wrote about it was Dr. John Sarno, who died a couple years ago. What he he wrote a book uh, on on mind body connection and sold millions of copies. And what he basically said was, when I tell people my theory, which is that pain is a, pain is a real thing in the body, but often it flows from suppressed rage, from stress, and and you basically your body you you don't feel safe to express it. In the world, and so you you keep it in your body, and it turns into back aches, neck pain, you know, stomach pain. That when you tell people that theory, about half the people who hear that feel better, either completely better or partially better, which suggests that there's this mind-body connection. And our medical establishment didn't want to hear that, right? If you're a spine surgeon or you tr- you get paid to treat people for pain, you do not want to tell them there's this book that you could read that might actually take care of your pain. So I think this is a Really complicated topic. It's very hard because if you start talking about it, if you talk about it too aggressively, people think that you're doubting whether they really are in pain, whether it's all in their heads. It's an option. I mean, they can look at it as another option. There's also high subjectivity here when it comes to pain. I mean, they give you that little thing of the smile to the frown, and it's like, I don't know. I mean, I guess, I guess I'm not smiling, but I'm. I don't look like the you know the, the scream by Munch. Um, which one? Which one do I check? It's I see really, and you want to kind of get the right answer, because you figure what they give you is based on that. Yet when my first, when my sister had a hip replaced a few years ago, they gave her a bottle of a hundred Percocets. It was they uh, gave her a hundred. I don't think she took any. She took Advil. It did fine, just fine. You know, it's been so that those pain surveys were a huge. They were pushed out hard in the nineties. Medicare actually required them. There's a an organization called the Joint Commission that certifies hospitals for Medicare and you had to do, hospitals had to survey on pain. And sure enough, when you ask people their pain, everybody has a positivity bias. Right. You know, the only people, by the way, the only group of people in our society who do not over-exaggerate uh, their pain because of positivity bias. Women. Are, I was, oh, that's funny. I haven't seen the data on women, on kids. If you ask a kid, if you talk to doctors who treat uh, children, when you ask the, a kid if they're in pain, they could have just had a, their appendix out and they'll be grimacing while they tell you they're not in pain. But we, you know, most of us are wimpy, or certainly the men. I can't speak for the other half. My son had his tonsils out when he was 10 and he went pain-free the whole week, scowled at me from the couch, but did it with no medication and no food. And he survived fine. I would have given him cannabis perhaps. So look, I think no. I, I think parent, parents, as a, as a parent, I had my kids had their uh, wisdom teeth out. And uh, when they first went in, the, or, the oral surgeon gave them a Percocet prescription. And, and I talked to him and we and said, we're not gonna give our kids Percocet. I don't care. How much pain they are? There's just there's no reason to expose them to this drug, uh, and sure enough, uh, his office actually stopped prescribing Percocet. A lot of oral surgeons, a lot of oral surgeons aren't doing it anymore. They... And lo and behold, there it turns out there's an anesthetic there's an anesthetic called Expirel, 
that works just fine and, and is a way to avoid the medicine. So I think you need to do your homework and, and, and advocate for yourself and your family. Yeah, looking back, I'm actually thrilled that he did not take the medication and went on his own and decided he could do it pain-free. The or problem, medication free. You know, again, ninety percent of the people who take this stuff will be fine. The problem is, if you're in that ten percent, the other piece of it is that some people have a receptivity where you know they 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 try these drugs for the first time and they're like, oh my god, this is the feeling I've been waiting for my whole life. And I spend a lot of time in the addiction recovery world. And if you're one of those people, you don't know you're that person until you actually try it. So it's not all disconnection. That's a big piece of it. But there's also this. Uh, you know, biochemical, neurological piece of of are you hardwired to be somebody who's just gonna get have that that oh my god moment and be 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 hooked. So there's a um a public service commercial for uh, nicotine addiction that seems to suggest that one cigarette can hook you for life. That's all it takes. Seems a little bit of exaggeration, but for those with a personality or the gene or whatever it takes. It is certainly possible. It's akin to what you're saying about this is what I've, I've, I, this is a feeling I've longed for my whole life. And so my question was, and it was akin to what you've been talking about, is it necessarily addictive? If I was to take um, uh, an OxyContin right now, would I need another one later? Or am I just like, as somebody who's if never you were had in pain, problems, you would want another one, and that's probably where the change but, starts. No, if, if I was taking it recreationally, um, you know, somebody who's never had addiction problems. Well, so, I mean, can, I, would so I be safe? So I, my, the way I think about this, I think about when we talk about the, the connection issues, I think of that those are the sort of long-term fundamentals. But the short-term issue that comes up around, are you the kind of person who's going to get hooked on that first cigarette, that first drink, that first um, Oxycontin? It, it, that's a more of a short-term analysis. When you look at the data... People have very different experiences of these drugs. Sometimes it's related to family history or it shows up in family history. Sometimes it's in genetics. A lot of times it's in things like executive function. And what happens is you have a stress response that triggers you in that moment. And so we, you know, you can't, you don't really know what your makeup is. On the when I talk about this, there's about seven factors that form your personal risk profile. But the, th the one thing we can all do as a short-term kind of defense to this is to build up strong coping mechanisms, right? So we, we all get triggered all day long with stress, with anxiety. That It's just a human condition. And so the question is, how do you build up that, that response so you have, you know, you, you have the, the reserve to say, you know, this is, I, I, okay, I tried this, this really uh, did something powerful for, for me, but I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not going to do this again. You need the resistance. And so need. I think I think people need to really focus on on wellness, not just the classic, you know, exercise, nutrition, sleep, but on social uh, wellness, emotional wellness and having and spiritual wellness and really building a life out that has, you know, good supports so that you aren't so you you reduce the risk. The bottom line is when you talk about most of these harm events, it's very often very short-term decisions. People will make the decision to take, you know, you'll, you can tell your kids every day uh, of their lives, don't touch this stuff. And then all of a sudden they're at a party with friends and somebody presents something and, it's you know. It's peer pressure. The best thing you can do is kind of create short the, the some support so when they make those short-term decisions, uh, and when you make them yourself, you, you're, you're, you're in a better position to resist that, that, that maladaptive stress response. Because then you, what happens is people get on this loop 
where you try it and then you so you, you try you start using it more frequently and you up the dosage and you get a neurologic response to that and so you're you're kind of stuck and the question is how do you how do you create some some some, some ways to slow that down and protect yourself so how do you do that personally in my own life you know i i really try to stick to a regime of daily prayer of uh intense daily exercise i'm full of stress and anxiety and i just like i need to like sweat it out um and i try to build in social connection with people so that i'm like getting a reality check because if i spend too much time by myself i will drive myself crazy i'll find something to worry about as a lawyer my job is just to worry worry about someone's problem and then and then when i finish worrying about that problem i've got to worry about another problem and then i gotta work time in for my own problems and there's the constant cycle of worry so unless i like do these pieces a spiritual piece a physical piece you know, and they, sleep does matter, I think. Uh, but but that human connection piece, and really check in with: am I am I engaged with myself? Am I sort of you know regulating where I am and taking things? I you know getting the rest and recovery I need because that's that's a huge issue around technology. We're all constantly on twenty four seven. We have uh, our cell phones like blasting and keeping us in a really engaged brain state and not getting rest and recovery. So to me, those are kind. Those are the. It's not one size fits all. It's putting together a, a, a you know a, a structure in your own life that um, and and helping your kids do the same thing so that they're they're better protected in those moments. And yet, always hanging there will be that sense for those who have been addicted of. Boy, that sure did feel good. I know, I know cigarette smokers who have said, it's not a day that goes by. It's been 30 years, not a day that goes by that I wouldn't happily light up another one. You know, it's, it's the, the pleasure, that sense of pleasure never goes away. It never dies down, no matter. I mean, look, when I would go to AA, I would hear the most horrifying stories of people who had destroyed not just their lives, the lives of everyone around them. And you say, didn't those people give them happiness? Didn't they, you know, didn't in their hearts and their souls, didn't they go, what I'm doing is hurting the people who are around me? And yet it wasn't. They'd have to dive in. It was, you know, it was pretty self, self-absorbed. I don't know. It's, this is tough stuff. I, I relate. I come to the recovery community like as somebody with disordered eating. And, you know, you can tell me I, I know perfectly well that I, it's not good for me. It's not good for my family if I if I stress eat. And, and overeat and, and, and don't get my weight down, and yet I keep doing it. So we all engage in these self-destructive behaviors. So it's not, it, one piece of this community, the other big thing in the recovery community is a spiritual path, right? It's finding some sense of purpose that so that you don't make those bad short-term choices. And, and, and for me, the other big discovery was how much it's shame keeps us in locked into bad behaviors. So I'm, then I'm ashamed about how I feel that I, that in my case, that I overate. And so I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to, and I, and I just want to beat myself up about it. And so part of it, I think is just, you know, coming to a level of self-acceptance where, and, and, and where we can share what's going on with people around us and get the support we need so that we break these habits. Uh, Cause we all have them. Uh, I think you know what you show me people who don't who don't everyone has something in the closet somebody if you don't you don't connect with recovery it's probably it's the chances are it's out of denial rather than out of lack of some uh, disorder at least some folks are lucky enough to have disorders that are positive you know that that, that need perhaps you to mean the need to always smile that's like a great <laughs> one how do you get that 
you can look at disorders anyway. You could people who with cannabis do they need to smoke all day long? Not sure, you know. I mean, if they don't have anything to do, then they can smoke all day long. Yeah, well, does Stephen King have a, a writing disorder where he can't stop? I mean, no human being should put out that many books in a lifetime. <laughs> So the, the real issue with all these use, you know, it's really interesting, by the way, the, the number of people who report misusing a drug or alcohol or something is different than the number who have a use disorder. It's, it's with, with uh, drugs, it's about 10%. We have 20 million people misuse one drug or another, 2 million have a use disorder. So the definition of a use disorder is, it's really impairing your life, right. your, your work, your relationships. Um, and it's an interesting question. You know, I, I, uh, I, it's, I was just at the American Society of Addiction Medicine, and the big topic was not opioids. It was cannabis use disorder. Uh, and it's funny. I went there as somebody who really believes in cannabis as a therapeutic option, and there were very few. Those doctors don't show up for the American Society of Addiction Medicine. Everybody wants to talk about cannabis use disorder. And from my perspective, I, you know, I, I, the way I think about it is uh, with doctors, Every every if you walk around with a hammer, every problem looks like a nail, right? So <laughs> but, I have I have yes. a question to ask because mushrooms, and I don't know the the name. Psilocybin. Thank you, Harry. And now Colorado's legalized them. Where is this botanical mushroom that's going to come? That's supposed to like tell you how nature is going to react. Where is that going to fit now in to the opiate crisis, or is it going to be in the so when I wrote my chapter in this book on cannabis, and I, you know, for a long time I was very nervous to talk. I do a lot of work around the country in addiction, and there are a lot of people in the recovery community who are anti-cannabis, who are anti-psychedelics, and I, I, I came out in this book as uh, as being pro cannabis, pro uh, pro psychedelics, not from the standpoint that everybody should use them. Uh, and not uh, and recognizing that some people will have use disorders, but fundamentally because we're causing so much more harm uh, by by being locked into a criminalization, right? So decriminalization <laughs> leads us first of all, decriminalization t stops us from spending the money on putting people in jail, and and it starts and spending the money on people keeping people in better health, uh, and and then fun and fundamentally. You know, there's this whole debate about harm re reduction, and we look around the world. We have lots of examples. The best, the best example we have in the world is uh, Portugal, which in 2001 decriminalized everything, and uh, the data is there. The the it, better health, better results. We we our criminalization in this country is stopping research from being done. We've seen that with cannabis, and we're seeing that with psychedelics. Um, you know, I get calls from major research institutions. Uh, that that know my work on cannabis and have said to me, we we are federally funded institutions. Show us the pathway so that we can let our researchers start doing work on cannabis. And after going round and round, we're still at a point where the the, the answer is it's not. You can't do it yet. And on that note, which is a great note, uh, we're going to stop for a break. We've got another show coming up with Harry Nelson, author of The United States of Opioids: A Prescription for Liberating a Nation in Pain. A man who knows everything that should be known, that can be known about addiction, and that's a whole lot. It's Meryl Schindler with Janice Hardoon from The Antidote, with um, our cannabis connoisseur, Joanna Bellison, our engineer, Phil Giangrande, here on High on the Hog, the podcast. Be sure to catch the next one.